Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 266, which is less important than the fact that it's PASIC 2021 week. So what we're really here for is the first part of two for the 2021 Percussive Arts Society International Convention preview episodes. As has been the custom with this show, we'll be previewing some of the presentations that you'll be able to see if you are traveling to PASIC, which I hope you are. I should also note that there are a number of virtual presentations that are also occurring for those who cannot make the in-person conference. This year, on the podcast, we have nine guests who will be talking about the presentations, concerts, panels, etc., that they'll be participating in, and we'll be doing that in two parts. Today, we'll be looking at presentations that are occurring on Thursday and early Friday morning. Later, in part two, we will present to you folks that are presenting later in the day on Friday as well as all day on Saturday. As is the usual case for this week, these interviews are a portion of a fuller interview I did with each guest. In the weeks following PASIC, I'll be releasing the full interviews, so stay tuned for that. All right, enough with the preamble. Let's get to today's guests. First up is Columbia, Missouri-based percussion performer, educator, composer, and clinician, Alexandros Fragiscatos. Alexandros is presenting at one of the prime spots, to me at least, Thursday at 9 a.m. in the Wabash Ballroom, which of course means that he'll be able to enjoy the rest of PASIC nearly right away. Alexandros is part of the New Music Research Focus and presenting a new work for solo percussionists that likely has not been performed in the U.S. before. Here he is discussing his presentation. Well, Alex, let's talk about your what you're doing at PASIC this year and when you are performing it. And where also? So I'm performing a piece called T-Lane for an intimate percussionist by Rania Chrysostomu, who is a Cypriot composer living in England. Uh, This performance is uh, the 9 a.m. New Music Research Concert, which takes place. They kind of commandeer the Wabash Ballroom all day on the Thursday. So it's November 11th, 9 a.m. Um, that's all that's the best slot you, you're done and the conference <laughs> yeah. like everything's everything's great after that right i know that is a good slot the last time i performed at PASIC, it was the wednesday night concert which yeah. was even better because you get there you perform and then <laughs> you don't worry about anything else that's right uh, but yeah i guess this is kind of like the second best slot i suppose though i don't know I don't know how many people will go to the 9 a.m. new music research concert because it's at 9 a.m., you know what I mean? And like, yeah. that's like the first thing at PASIC. Some people like to kind of like mosey in throughout <laughs> Thursday, yeah, that's true. Friday. But either way, I'm super excited. So yeah, the piece is called T-Lane. It involves speaking and playing percussion as the, the theme of the new music research day. I still... I think it used to be called Focus Day. I sometimes accidentally call it Focus Day. I'm not sure if it's still technically Focus Day or not. Um, But that's the theme is uh, the speaking percussionist. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
this was actually supposed to take place last year, obviously, but it went virtual. And so they kind of delayed it to this year. It calls for two, two wood blocks, bongos, and a wind gong. Pretty nice, compact setup, easily transportable, perfect for going to PASIC with. It involves the text written by the composer, and she describes it as, um, and this is, I'm quoting her from the score, a, a poem on bad habits we can't let go of and the comfort of the spiraling brain. So she writes this text. It's very nice. It's, um, she writes it in Greek, and then she has an English translation as well. Um, but as with most language, in my opinion, it's not always sounds better and not English. <laughs> sure. Um, so I do it, I do it in the Greek. The, the title is actually comes from ancient Greek telane. It's an ancient Greek word for pluck to pluck, but the piece is kind of in three parts. The, the, the first and the outer part involves the wind gong. And that's where this, this is where the intimate percussion is comes into play it involves wind gong and prescribed hand gestures that you use to play the wind gong with your fingertips and scrapes and whatnot and that's when you're doing the bulk of the speaking the 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 outer sections the middle section is kind of more like a chaotic this is i think would be the spiraling brain part of the um whole ordeal and so this is um, this is where you're playing the wood blocks and the bongos, and you also you also hit the wind gong a couple times in there, but it's mostly for these different, you know, these this different timbre, the the blocks and the and the bongos. And I guess that's kind of the the gist of the piece. The biggest challenge, other than like trying to figure out how you want to declaim the text and like what your vibe is going to be, um, which is always a a struggle with, I think, text and, and percussion because you don't want to come off just like you're, I don't know, just like you're reciting a text and you're just doing it because it's part of the piece. You want it to be, I guess, a little theatrical, but like not overly dramatic. But I suppose it depends on the context of the piece. Like this particular piece, it's a, it's, it's a poem and I kind of... Th- see it as like an internal dialogue that's occurring. So that's the way I approach it. I kind of have like these two voices in my head, mm-hmm. which I'm like speaking out loud. So it's not something that like I'm turning towards the audience and addressing the audience or making a big show of it. It's more like an internal dialogue and internal struggle. Um, but other than the text part and, and caveat, I don't claim to be an expert on speaking and playing percussion I only started doing a few pieces a few years ago when I just wanted to challenge myself to do something different and uh, something out of my comfort zone, but I kind of enjoy it. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I was selected to be a part of this um, new music research theme with all sorts of other great percussionists. Um, so I just want to say, don't look at me as a, a, uh, like a, an expert on the matter. Don't claim to be an expert or the best or anything. I just enjoy doing it. Okay. Other than the speaking, the real, the hardest part was figuring out what kind of implement am I going to use? Cause I have to play, I have to play the wind gong, the bongos and the wood blocks. So it's not really time to change mallets or anything. And I have to get a scrape and some articulate passage, like some articulate rhythms on the wind gong. 
as well as articulate rhythms on the blocks and the bongos. I have to have stick like audible stick clicks. Uh, there's also rim shots on the bongos and like two stroke grace grace notes, like roughs on the wood blocks. So I went through so many stick options trying to like come up what, what stick can produce all these sounds and not like um, sacrifice too much of our, our traditional beautiful options for all each of these instruments. You know what I mean? And I ended up choosing timbale sticks of all things, which I don't think I've used since like I played, I don't know, the symphonic West side story version yeah. with orchestra or whatever, several years ago. Um, so yeah, I'm using timbale sticks, which probably most people would be like, mm, that's kind of weird. Why are you using that on wood blocks? Maybe bongos. Sure. That makes sense. But it was like the best option mallets, any type of mallets just didn't work very well to get grace notes or you can't really scrape unless you like, I guess, turn on the back of the mallet or I guess, and hit the, and the wind gong, but it just, they were just the shafts they were just too thin. Uh, timbale sticks worked out to be the best. So if you listen to this and then see my performance, you know why I'm using timbale sticks. Don't judge me. So, okay. So a couple questions. One is that you, what you also, what you hadn't alluded to, cause I know that you just performed this last week for uh, Mizzou's percussion studio is that this was not what you were originally attending to perform and you were able to get it switched out. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, that's true. When I originally submitted my proposal, what I was approved for was Frederick Jeffsky's to the earth, which I've performed before. And I actually did it in the ancient Greek that it's written with. I think most people do it in English or, or maybe there's German on there too. Um, but I never heard it done in ancient Greek. I know I was definitely not the first one to do it in ancient Greek. I think it's been done before in ancient, in the ancient Greek, but I don't speak ancient Greek or know ancient Greek like very well. Um, I am kind of comparable in modern Greek. I'm always uh, hesitant to say I'm fluent in modern Greek just because I always have much more to learn. <laughs> um, but actually pronouncing ancient Greek is different than pronouncing modern Greek. If you know modern Greek, like um, modern day Greeks can't go back and read ancient Greek and just be like, oh yeah, I know all these words. You know, it, they're like constructed differently and they don't they're spelled differently and it's pronounced differently. Um, anyways, I was supposed to do that. But I came across this piece and I thought, you know, this would be cool. This is a piece that I had only been performed once when it was premiered in Cyprus. It's a young female composer. And I always thought Pasek was a great opportunity to explore, obviously, the, the great pieces that we consider like part of our canon, like the Jevsky. But I always thought Pasek was a great avenue for new composers to be heard new voices new pieces to get us out of our traditional lit comfort zone and this this piece fit the bill i mean it included greek text <laughs> it wasn't ancient greek but i guess the title is ancient greek um it was by a female composer and a composer who i don't think has been performed in the u.s as far as i know i should ask her just to make sure um 
but it would be a great opportunity to introduce something different to the percussion community. And um, I just thought, you know, the Jevsky has been performed a lot and most people know it. And, you know, even though I thought I was offering something new by doing it in the ancient Greek, I thought doing a newer piece, this was only written a couple years ago and, you know, highlighting a new composer, a new voice in our canon would be cool. And so I asked and I explained all that and they said, yeah, that's cool. Um, of course, then like a few months later or whatever, several months later, Jevsky died, unfortunately. And I thought, wow, maybe I should have kept the Jevsky as like an homage to him. Um, but, you know, it was too late by then. So rest in peace, Jevsky. Thank you for all the great lit. I'm excited to share this piece. I think it's it's cool. It's cool to, to introduce some new voices and, and new ideas to the percussion community and PASIC is the perfect place to do that. Yeah. Because of the fact that you are, you, the implements for playing, particularly the, the spoken part are your fingers and your fingertips. Uh, what are some of the acoustic issues that come up while trying to perform these two very different, like the middle section being extremely percussive and these outer yeah. sections being very difficult to hear percussion. Yeah, very delicate. Yeah. So I think the idea is that I'll be I'll be mic'd. The last time I performed, I really didn't require any extra miking. They just kind of did their general miking. Um, but what I asked for was like a uh, a headset mic that would both pick up my speaking as well as the the very delicate stuff that I'm doing on the wind gong. And I think that would really um, solve any problems of of not being able to be heard, especially in such a big ballroom. Um, and then, you know, the wood blocks and the bongos don't really need mic. There'll probably be an overhead just because. Um, but yeah, I think this, you can tell me, Mm -hmm. Like even in that room where I was performing at Mizzou, yeah. could you, were you able to hear or were there any times that I was playing the, the wind gong that you couldn't really hear what any timbre or any sound? You could hear them all, but I think it would be benefit, even in a room like that, it would have benefited from, from, from being mic'd just because. I think it, it, there could be a tendency, particularly in a larger room, to try to overplay that stuff, or, or like I would say, be in danger of hurting yourself because you're trying to to play a, something out that just can't. There's not a right. large uh, volume range you're you're you can really make happen unless you start like injuring <laughs> body for right. Basically. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I agree. I I figured, um, and I. I performed this too as well for at the University of Cincinnati, the CCM percussion studio. And, you know, I've thought of that in my mind. Should I ask for mics? It's like, nah, this is just, you know, kind of a run through. I don't need to make this super complicated for a studio class, but definitely for PASIC, I want this stuff mic'd appropriately. So the sound check will be super important when I get there on Thursday morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> and and relatedly do is there expected to be that the all of these are usually filmed and mm -hmm. are you expecting um 
video to be like intru- intrusive in any way, you know, because when we, when you talked in the class, I had you kind of, I asked for you to demonstrate a little bit more of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you, if that's one of those things where you're just like, I just as long as it's mic'd, I don't really care what the video yeah. comes out. That's a, that's a good, a good question. I think the video come also brings to mind, like the visual aspect of the audience as well. And I thought about this a lot and I have requested that the setup, the way I'm setting up and the, the wind gong being to my left, I thought it would be best if I was on stage left as not to close off, you know, everyone who would be on my left if I, if I was on stage right or even in the center of the stage. Sure. So the wind gong is not blocking anyone's view per se. And the thing I need to do is, and I've been actually experimenting with this even since um, my performance last week, is angling the wind gong even more out towards the audience if I just go too far, then it's just hard to play that intimate um, outer, the intimate outer sections very um, comfortably. Yeah. And I don't want to sacrifice that too much. Um, but yeah, there's the visual element. I, you know, I, I'd like everyone to be able to see exactly what I'm doing on the wind gong. And really the only good way to do that is to have, I don't know, the wind gong, behind me and be turned facing towards it you know what i mean that way everyone can see me from from behind doing but like that's not a feasible thing to really do and and play with the other stuff um i don't want to have to like (laughs) swing my stick behind me to hit the to wing gong so it's it's a compromise um and it's 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 a good question it's one I've, i've thought about a lot and I don't want to compromise too much. It'll affect my playing and just kind of the natural vibe of the piece being this intimate thing. And, um, you know, I don't want to sacrifice any performance aspect to it, but I do want as many people as possible to at least see what's going on. So hopefully having requesting to be on stage left and that happening and me maybe angling my setup a little more towards the left. Um, that way I'm angled out towards the audience and not quite a profile of me, but maybe just not completely straight on. And that'll open up the wind gong visual aspect. So hopefully we'll see. Yeah. Well, one other thing that I was thinking about in this type of performance is how much, I'm sure you've thought a lot about how you're not just how you're speaking, but directionally, which way, you know, are you, is this, are you performing it so that the, your face is seen to the audience or are you performing towards the instrument and how, what, what, what kind of things have you figured out making that happen? That's a a good, a good thought because it's something yeah, I definitely thought about it being so for instance if i was performing the Zhevsky, um which is like a prayer it's like a prayer to the the earth right the, yeah. or the 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 earth god or the gaia when i perform that i it's not i'm not even necessarily addressing the audience but i'm i'm more like looking out and up 
right. as like a as like a prayer when I'm playing as much as possible. But for something like this, which is which I interpret or which I which I interpret as like an inner struggle, an inner dialogue, I'm not um, overtly trying to uh, to speak out to the audience. It's more of a a personal kind of dialogue. I guess generally I'm facing the wind gong when I'm, I'm speaking. Um, it's not to say I, I won't move. My gestures won't move depending on what I'm saying and the, the intent and the meaning behind the words. Um, but I think, I think I'm mostly um, just thinking about having that inner dialogue. And as a result, I'm not, turning overtly out towards the audience when I'm speaking. Um, but I want to balance that as much as possible with like kind of the traditional, you know, you want people to be able to see your face as much as possible when you're performing, because especially something with, with text and there's like emotional intent behind that. Um, you want, you want your face to the facial expressions are important as well. And I know I'm, I'm trying to make certain facial, well, I'm not trying to make, I'm trying to let it happen naturally with what the, the text actually means. Um, so I don't want that completely lost. So I am still thinking about how, if I do turn out a little bit, depending on what I'm saying, I don't want it to just be like, I turn out and here's my face, everyone. I want it to, to make sense with the the text and the meaning. So, yeah that's a long answer, but it's a, it's something that does play through my head when, I, when I practice this piece and, um, it's just like a negotiation basically. <laughs> November 11th, 9am Wabash ballroom. Be there with all the cool new music research buffs. <laughs> awesome. Next up is Gainesville, Florida-based percussion performer, educator, and clinician, Danielle Moreau. Currently teaching at the University of Florida, Danielle is also presenting as part of the new music research focus on percussion with voice. The work she's performing has a fascinating history, both personally and to the wider world. Danielle is performing on the 3 p.m. New Music Research Concert on Thursday in the Wabash Ballroom, and here she is discussing her presentation. All right, so Danielle, uh, tell me what you are presenting and when you're presenting it at PASIC. Sure. So I am uh, playing during the 3 p.m. session for the New Music Research Presents events. And I am playing Derek Taiwanook's Savino for Marimba and Tape. Uh, it's a, you know, really unique piece in that it takes, um, you know, the, the speech that was given by Diane Savino, who's a New York state senator. Uh, it was given in 2009 about marriage equality. So this was during the time when they were determining what they were going to do specifically in the state of New York. And the piece was written in 2015. So it was written several years later, uh, right about when we were having that discussion on a national level. And, um, you know, the, the piece is unique in that as the marimbust, I am uh, emphasizing her speech patterns. So the rhythm of her speech, the inflections, 
the mood of her speech, all of those things. And so, um, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Is the piece, or excuse me, is the tape part a, her speech just kind of straight ahead or is it, are there things that are clipped for effect or stuff like that? Yeah. Unedited. My understanding is, is that it was taken directly from, you know, the, um, the video of her giving the speech at that time. And so there's, if any editing at all, it's, it's very minimal. Um, it has, you know, moments where she makes mistakes in her words. And so she stutters a little bit. My part serves that very well. It doesn't try to, I don't know, get around that in some way. It, it really is. Authentic. There's no editing like yeah, there be in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's truly unedited. The marimba part really serves exactly how she gave that speech at that time. And I think that's one of the things that I really uh, enjoy about it. It's a very passionate speech, but it's also the, the music itself is pure as it was given at that time. How did you first get connected to the work itself? It was probably in 2016. So that was a year after it had been released. And I think I had seen it on the New Works Project, which is a nonprofit organization that actually Derek is president of currently. He's on the board there. Um, But back then they had released this video just to kind of promote him and share the work that he was doing. And that's how I had found it. Nice. Um, Now, is that... Remind me again, 2015, is that, when was the um, Supreme Court ruling? Is that the next year? I think it was in 2015. I guess okay. I should, I should know, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it was, that the piece had been finished slightly before, because it was during the summer that the Supreme Court had ruled. There's marimba part you said serves, mm-hmm. like you said serves very well. Does that mean that? It is equal volume, under volume. What, what's the, how is the prominence of the vo- voice part compared to how loud or soft you're playing? And are you kind of filling in gaps when there's breaks in, in the speech? Sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Derek says at the very beginning, um, all of the rhythm, the dynamic, the phrasing, all of that is based on my interpretation of the speech itself. And so I'm trying to follow her rhythmic pattern as much as possible. Um, and also, you know, dynam- dynamically, I, I have opted to play more of a supportive role because I don't want to take away from the text itself. I'm just sure. adding sort of a melodic layer to the things that she's discussing. So I think that the way in which it was written performers could interpret that differently. I've opted to um, try to be slightly underneath her volume. That way I'm not taking away from the text in any way. Got it. Are you playing, is there a click track or are you just, is it just there and you are reacting to it in real time? Yeah, it's, it's just there. And so it was really difficult to learn. I had, most of the time when we go to learn music, we sit down, with a metronome and we, you know, put the music on the stand and we practice that way. Couldn't do it that way. And initially I was like, okay, I'm going to learn this phrase at a time without the text. That way I know what it's going to feel like. And I found out that I was making my own rhythmic decisions. Uh, And so then when I went to play it with the tape art, it was really, really challenging. And so I quickly learned that the best approach was taking 
the tape part as is slowing it down, you know, 40% or 60%, depending on what I needed. And then practicing it along with it while I was sort of sight reading it. And, and that was, that was my approach. I'm not sure it was the smoothest approach, but I, I think it worked out well in the end. So yeah. what, what did you use to slow the tape down? Uh, there's an app that I have called audio stretch. Okay. And I don't know if it's available anymore. I know I purchased it when I bought my iPad originally. It's like a really old iPad, but mm. yeah, I could just plop it in um, and slow the whole thing down. It obviously distorts a little bit, but you know, for, for my purposes, it was essentially like taking the rhythm and expanding it out exactly as I was going to play it. Um, and then just kind of working it back in. So it, it was definitely unlike any piece I've ever learned. You know, I've, I've done Andy Akiho's Stop Speaking, which has a little bit of that, you know, we, we need to align with the voice part at certain points. Um, but other than that, we could sort of get to make our own decisions about how we want to do that. Here, I really tried to start and stop and follow her rhythmic pattern as much as possible. So, And when you were slowing it down, you were able to not have it be like, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That, that didn't happen. Luckily, (laughs) um, you know, her speech is very passionate. You know, you can tell that this is an important topic. And so she's speaking very quickly, even when it was slowed down, it didn't feel kind of that garbly feeling or anything like that. It still maintained a lot of its like quality the structure and that sort of thing. What's the nature of the marimba part in terms of stylistically? It's this mix of, of like uh, harmonic uh, chordal gestures that are happening, depending on, you know, if, if I'm emphasizing just certain words within a phrase that she's giving. There are other times where I'm playing a string of notes following the entirety of her statement. Um, there's a lot of chromaticism. And, and I think that, um, you know, the pitch content that was selected, it's, the, the more that I'm getting to know the piece and I can tell it's one of those things where I'm, I'm still growing with it, if that makes sense. But, um, I can tell like why he opted to use this certain register or why he was emphasizing these certain words with that register and that, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a mix of these, um, you know, very vertical gestures mixed with these melodic lines that come out. Does this piece, where does it lie in terms of in, Derek's compositional output. I don't know how many pieces he's done with electronics. He obviously writes a lot for um, percussion. He's written a piece called Dorothy Fragments for um, Spectrum Ensemble, which is also sort of in this similar vein of the LGBT um, community. I wouldn't say that it's it's far outside of his his writing style, at least not from what I've experienced of his music. Are you quite frequently playing stuff with tape or electronics? Is this kind of just in your wheelhouse there? Yeah, yeah. That's something that I'm really comfortable with and I'm becoming increasingly comfortable with it. <laughs> you know, it gets better as it gets better. That's one of my favorite phrases. Um, oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, usually the things that I end up doing require a click. So there'll be fixed media with click of some kind or our live interaction electronics. And so what ends up happening there is 
you know, I'm interacting with the electronics or the electronics are interacting with me, but it's, it's not, um, it's a different kind of organic. I think that, you know, when I'm playing this particular piece, even though it's fixed media and I don't require a click, it still allows me to make these musical decisions as I'm going along. And so while I'm comfortable with, you know, fixed media and electronics in general, it was definitely different than what I'm used to. Was this piece commissioned? It was, it was commissioned by Brian or uh, Brandon Elaw. Am I saying that right? I think I am. Brandon Elaw um, for the Zeltzman Marimba Festival. Mm. And I think it was during the, the 2015 festival. I'd have to double check. Um, but yeah, it was commissioned for that event specifically. Anything particularly, um, I guess, technically challenging in the part itself, aside from trying to figure out how to practice it? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, there are a number of large intervals that are spread out across the instrument. That's what I, and, and quick changes from, you know, the lower register of the marimba to the upper end. Um, and, you know, I'm not short, <laughs> but I also don't have the longest arms. And so that was just an added challenge for me personally. Um, there are moments in the text where she is speaking very rapidly and there will be a lot of notes condensed into a very small <laughs> period of time. And so I found that to be particularly challenging. When it comes out well, it's amazing. Like it just sounds really, really amazing alongside this particular text. Uh, but yeah, I'd say it's the string of very rapid notes and then the quick shifts from the low end to the high end or the high end to the low end. I'm excited to get to share it. I think that, you know, Derek's writing style is amazing. I'm not aware that this piece has been performed frequently and certainly not nearly as much as I think that it should be. So I hope that I hope it's enjoyed and I hope that it gets programmed frequently as a result. Next up is Provincetown, Massachusetts based percussion performer, singer, and innkeeper. Stay tuned for more of that in the full episode. Brian Calhoun. Brian is also performing on the same 3 p.m. New Music Research concert in the Wabash Ballroom that Danielle is on, this time putting together his Marimba Cabaret showcase for PASIC. Brian will be covering a number of show tunes and pop tunes in his performance, and here he is discussing how he's conceived of his presentation. All right. So, Brian, tell me what you're going to be doing at PASIC, when you're performing, all that, et cetera. Yeah. So I am excited to be part of this amazing lineup of percussionists who are also vocalists. Uh, the New Music Research Presents focuses on percussion and voice. Specifically, I will be singing and playing marimba. I do uh, covers of show tunes, so musical theater and pop songs. Um, and I'll be presenting at the end of the three o'clock session on Thursday uh, in Wabash. And it's, I think that hour is, is called a cabaret or sort of a mix of, you know, some singers, but some spoken, uh, spoken word and percussion. But mine specifically will be show tunes and marimba. How does one get into accompanying yourself on for show tunes, singing and marimba? 
I definitely stumbled upon this. And like so many of us, finding our niche is not a straight line. Uh, it was not something that I was trained in. Uh, you know, I went to music conservatory. I have two degrees in percussion performance. And most of the music I play is not classical. And I kind of found my weird mix of things by embracing things that I just love. I just have, you know, unabashed love and passion for. Um, I definitely grew up um, in a musical and artistic family. We would go see plays and musicals and concerts. And, you know, I was lucky to have piano in the house. Um, my grandmother and my dad both played, my mom sang. And so there was always something musical happening, whether it was being played in the house or we were watching it or going to see it together. I grew up loving musicals. That was always a thing I enjoyed. And I was always singing, actually. I would, my mom would tell me stories that my teachers would, like in elementary school, you know, when they have the parent teacher conference, whatever, they'd yep. say, like, oh, you know, Brian's very, very active. I definitely have an ADD kid. Um, and I would often be singing or humming. Like I couldn't just keep quiet or keep still. Um, I didn't study voice in uh, school as a, you know, as a major or anything. Um, I mean, I sang in choirs and whatnot, but that was on the side. Percussion was definitely more of my uh, passion and interest at the time. It really wasn't until I guess grad school that I started looking outside of classical concert music. It was sort of a, it kind of felt taboo to be honest. And I think this is changing, but a lot of conservatories, I mean, it's in their name, they're conservative. Sure. Um, that's sort of an ongoing challenge uh, with lots of repercussions. Um, yeah. But I finally felt free to explore. And I remember in one studio class, I did a West Side Story uh, cover. One of the first ones I did, it was Something's Coming. Mm -hmm. And I played it and I remember being terrified of their reaction you know, whether the teacher would not approve of me doing something not classical percussion music mm -hmm. um, or the, you know, the more jock bro types in the studio mm -hmm. just laughing at me, but they loved it. They yeah. were like, this is so cool. I've never seen anyone do this before. And I was mm -hmm. like, wait, really? Like, this is okay. Like you, yeah. you welcome this. And that you was were, the, were you concerned that they were giving going to be just I can't really snap, but just like they're just snap, snap, just not answering, but just giving you snaps the whole time. <laughs> that would have like, been are you a button. jet or a shark? What's going on right now? <laughs> that would have been impressive if they all like teamed up and knew um, the reference. But yeah. I would not put that. I would I would put that past them. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an awesome response though. If everyone just like blank stared, stared at me quiet and started snapping and, st and began dancing. Yeah. That would have been, that would have greatly changed my mind about the, you know, the culture of the percussion <laughs> studio. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but no, they were actually really supportive and um, uh, it took a few years, but I, I ended up um, finding my duo partner in this um, Greg Jukes, who he and I have, created uh, shows based on this. And I never would have guessed, you know, as a freshman in college that I'd be singing show tunes, performing on my front porch of the inn that I own and be absolutely beaming. 
in my element. You yeah. know, you never know where your your element will will find you. What what kind of accommodations did you see early on when you were trying to put together, like let's say, a set list for this kind of thing um, that you needed to make it so that people were not only paying attention to you playing, but also paying attention to your singing and could you know hear you sing? Honestly, that's a really good question. I some of the best advice I got was actually after my first show. Um, I had, you know, been doing some solo recitals like at the library or, you know, in grad school, I did a marimba and voice recital and it was definitely more classical. And this was the first time I booked a club. Uh, it was like a sit down theater and people came and paid, you know, a ticket um, to come and see me do the show. And apparently the whole time I was looking down, I was looking down at the marimba because I'm, you know, playing marimba, yeah, yeah. reading music, not just reading music, reading lyrics. So my eyes were either stuck on the iPad. I mean, yeah. I had the, you know, the big iPad with the Bluetooth page turner because you can't possibly, I could either memorize the music or the lyrics, maybe not both. So I needed yeah. to have something in front of me. I remember thinking like, okay, I've got this. I can, you know, go get through the show. Afterwards, this really supportive um, fan, I, I had never um, seen them perform, but they had seen me and they said, I love what you're doing, but don't forget that people are coming to see you and not the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. And it was a really nice reminder that as much as I, you know, we'd like to think, oh, playing the marimba, it's so impressive and so, you know, visually cool to watch um percussion is a very visual physical thing yep as soon as you start singing as soon as words come out of your mouth that is the first thing that people are looking at and they're looking at your face to yep. express or communicate right and so if you are seeing a, a singer you know staring at music and not even looking at the audience there's that connection isn't there and i really valued that advice because it, I, I would think of that. I would either put my music stand higher up so that um, it's not, I'm not looking low and it's a little bit more forward facing. It also inspired me to memorize more so that I could look out and, you know, have more engagement. Um, also a very key part is getting one of these Britney Mike style um, headsets. Yeah. Uh, specifically, I've got a Countryman E6. So I'm getting a really close um, pick up yeah. and cause you know, you're turning left and right. You're looking all around. Yeah. I, I, before I made the investment, I had to have a microphone on a boom stand and that was like the worst way to perform. Yeah. I mean, imagine trying to play marimba and just like not move your head, like in any, if you had to reach yeah. the lower end, no, you, that wasn't the right fit. So it was definitely pricey, but worth getting this wireless uh, receiver so that, I could pipe into whatever system they have, yeah. have this consistent um, pickup on my voice. And it had a side benefit of, you know, it would pick up a little bit of the marimba. Mm -hmm. So the marimba would be somewhat amplified, but the voice was um, stronger. So it actually provided a natural balance too, because, you know, the, the marimba is always going to um, compete. And um, yeah, those were kind of the, the elements that made this, this show feasible. You, either done master classes or talk to students who are, who are studying this or, or doing it. And the, one of the reasons I bring this up is that there are a number of times when I've seen 
uh, performers do the singing and playing marimba stuff in particular. And they are either, there are two things that are going on. One is that they're either practically shouting so that they Mm -hmm. can be heard over the instrument or they're just playing the marimba just too loud. And, and so I don't know if, if those things come up and like how you kind of assess the situation when you're presenting with that. Yes. And yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to do a number of, of classes, either introducing uh, players to the concept or working with young students who are discovering this themselves. And I'm so happy to like pay it forward because I wish I had that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in school figuring it out. You know, it took a lot of trial and error and, you know, even just recording and listening back or watching yourself back and go, God, I'm doing that with my neck while I'm yeah. playing. Like, yeah. what the heck? Um, yeah, those are definitely common things that happen. I think we forget that our perspective as the percussionist is so different than five or 10 feet in front of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could talk forever about the sound of mallets over the marimba versus yeah. in front. Same thing. You can always hear your voice, but if you're playing over the marimba, you, you have a wall of sound you're competing with. So, um, I mean, the microphone, obviously, um, the headset helps with the balance to be able to control that. Sometimes it can actually go too far where you have only the voice coming through the speaker and no marimba, mm-hmm. then you're kind of like, you know, lopsided. Sure. Um, but if you're in a setting where you don't have sound equipment um, to sort of balance the, the occasion, you do have to get comfortable playing, um, underplaying. Um, with the marimba, a lighter touch, still being able to get the feel and sound that you want. But that's also a skill to have, whether you're in any mixed ensemble or setting where you you have to adjust. It turned into one of these, like, I don't know if you can see, you know. Yeah, you're tight your head. Your head, and head yeah. Multitasking kind of thing, because um, so, so much of what you do has to be on a certain autopilot so that you can dial it in and adjust it. Um, Definitely playing to support the voice because, I mean, I don't know if there's some universal hierarchy of instruments, but the voice will always rise to the top in terms of who you balance to or who you yield to, just like an accompanist is going to follow the singer because they have to take a big breath here. So you have to wait for them to come in. Any instrument you play has to balance to the voice. Unless the goal is that they're just on the same level and it's more of an ethereal cloudy kind of thing if you have words you need to hear the words and that means balancing to the instrument uh with the arrangements that you do are you typically playing off of piano score and just reading it down are you going chords and you're making up a part or mixture how how are you uh arranging the marimba part i sort of laughed thinking what what I used to do, um, sure. it has certainly evolved from when I started. Yeah. Um, you know, I came from a very, well, a traditional platform where, you know, if you're transcribing music for the marimba, you know, you're taking Bach lute suites, you are playing what is written and only making adaptations or adjustments if you must, you know, yeah. you must be loyal to the printed part and to change something by an octave for resonance or whatever is like, you know, a right. big, big risk. Um, yeah. So I felt a lot of loyalty to the printed um, music. And when I would start to adapt from, you know, it, it, sometimes you can get a piano score, sheet music. Um, sometimes those are really plain, 
you know, beginner parts that are not going to sound very full on the marimba. Sometimes I would actually transcribe from a recording. And those were the most painstaking, but sometimes the most rewarding, because I would like, you know, write down the exact baseline I heard, not necessarily what was printed, or, you know, come up with something that was very suited to the marimba, Mm -hmm. but took a lot of work on the front end. Um, I remember one of the first times I ever did these, um, I had a marimba cover band for a while where there were like four players. It was actually most of the, my quartet, the Boston Percussion Group. Um, And I would write out these arrangements and each person had a part. And I was trying to be very, you know, by the book and by the note. And to be honest, it was way more work than I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I felt as if I needed to treat it like a formal orchestral score and honor all the voices and all the parts, which, and, you know, on one hand is a very nice thing to do to try to be loyal to it. But I started getting more comfortable, like knowing how to interpret, yeah, a lead sheet or to interpret, hey, this, you know, 10 finger piano part doesn't really, I can't lay all these notes down. What's the essence of it? You start to, you know, apply that. Um, theory and ear training and voice leading and just follow, okay, what's, what's the, what's the framework here that I need to maintain to get the point across. Um, So I went from, you know, transcribing and, and writing in my own arrangements on Sibelius, Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the notation system, I wouldn't start practicing until I'd input it from a score or made my own arrangement for two instruments yeah. To now, I just download stuff off of music notes, mm-hmm. whether it's a lead sheet or a piano part. And I can, I wouldn't say sight read, but I can, you know, see what's laid out, know how the song goes and yeah. kind of approximate. Um, the more practice you do that with, I mean, the more often you can just sort of skip the steps of transcribing, writing it down, working it out to just like, zooming out, getting the big picture. And yeah, I do just read down uh, a lot of piano sheet music. And um, it also helps because it usually has the form written out. Right. A, a lot of the songs do have, you know, repeats. They're not through composed. Some some uh, shows are through composed, but some they just have the repeats built in. Got the Bluetooth page turn and I can just go back and forth and, and work my way through it and kind of find my own way through it. Yeah. Unless you're doing Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen, in which case that is through composed. But Gotcha. Okay. I don't know that tune, but... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> my example was going to be um, Around the World from Grey Gardens, um, oh. the musical, which is through composed and quite long and heavy. Yeah. And actually, while it is this pretty virtuosic piano part it actually lays really well across the marimba and vibraphone Mm. um i'd only performed it i think once or twice because it's really tricky but it has these really cool like six tuplet runs kind of up and down the instrument and um this really quirky character singing over it it's a very heavy song if anyone is given a listen but it has so much character in it that it's fun to discover these piano parts that are really written for the marimba like Jason Robert Brown has a bunch of those too. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to think who else, but yeah, sometimes you discover composers didn't know that they wrote marimba parts for you, basically. Yeah, yeah, of course. How often do you play 
in this kind of setting by yourself? And how often are you with your duo partner? I mean, that just flipped upside down when COVID happened. Um, mm-hmm. Because I would have said, you know, two years ago, I would say, oh, I rarely play solo. I usually have someone with me. Um, that's, I think the reason I felt comfortable with another person is one, just for the added instrument, you know, usually drum set will find its way to fit, you know, in with the arrangement and I'll feel kind of empty without it. Like if I'm doing um, uh, the ladies who lunch from company that needs like a bossa nova drum set behind it. When I play a solo in the marimba, I try to replicate that, but I'm doing a lot more work than just playing the chords. I'm also trying to provide the rhythmic underpinning while also singing in character out of time. (laughs) Um, but so, yeah, a lot of times I would defer to playing with, uh, Greg, um, who we just read each other so well, it's very easy to play. You know, when you find your person, um, you can naturally, um, fill in the gaps. A lot of times there would be just a need for the sustain, uh, of the vibraphone because the marimba, as much as I love it, it, it has a decay and the vibraphone can help support and cover up uh, some of that space that if the song needs it, there's some songs I I wouldn't do solo. Yeah. Um, That of course changed when COVID happened and I found myself live streaming on Facebook from my basement, Mm -hmm. which might've been the most demoralizing feeling I've ever had second to performing for four people. My, I had a, audience of four at one fringe festival um a few years back and that was not demoralizing they were very sweet but it was tough to play for four people an hour show that you know you hope to have a crowd yeah yeah. um anyway but the the pandemic has had so many silver linings um i mean the more time has passed the more of these silver linings i've discovered and and so appreciate because it forced me to develop a sense of independence yeah to be my own drummer to be my own accompanist so that i would so easily say no i could never do that solo i need greg here mm-hmm. because greg could be there yeah when greg couldn't show up and it was just me i'm like well either i figure this out or i don't perform right and suddenly i mean this last summer um I had these weekly porch concerts, uh, Marimba Mondays, as they're mm-hmm. now known in town. <laughs> um, and I would roll the marimba out onto our front porch, which prominently faces Commercial Street, which is the main drag in Provincetown. Mm-hmm. And people would just walk by, sit on the sidewalk, sit on the grass and watch uh, live music. And I did this so regularly that I learned how I could trust myself um, and support myself in a way that I, I wouldn't if that wasn't the only option. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely taught me a lot of independence that way, but I love and welcome the chance to play with uh, new people. Uh, my husband uh, is a recovering high school band director. He taught instru- instrumental music for 15 years. And I mean, as you know, it's a tough job. He he burnt out, but he plays a lot of instruments. So sometimes he'll play drum set with me. Sometimes he'll play trumpet, a little backup. And um, uh, there's also an amazing flute player in town who we will do flute and marimba 
uh, duets. Yeah. Not written for that. We're just reading off of whatever we want and yeah. kind of discover our own thing. So I feel I've gained a little bit more independence as a um, soloist, but also a collaborator kind of as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I didn't know if you're um, when you brought up that your your husband sometimes joined you as a, a recovering band director. If he uh, if he plays like we'll say like sixth grade level tenor sax, um, and you try to make it work in that way or something like that. He's a trumpet player. Like that was his yeah. um, instrument in college, and so he's definitely a competent, comfortable sure. trumpet player. Um, sorry, oh, if he's listening, competent. That sounds so um, cruel. He is a solid trumpet player. His drum set playing, he will admit, is like middle school, early high school. Um, uh-huh. But hey, he's got, you know, he's got the the backbeat. He's got the like two fills. And yeah, yeah. that can do most pop songs. You know, sure, yeah. Michael's Faith. We got um, You'll Be Back from Hamilton. You know, just yeah, a yeah. little two and four going on. Of course. Um, that gives me a little bit of a little bit of a break. Nice. One thing I definitely found is as I would play solo, I would fatigue a lot faster Sure. because I'm just having to do a lot more and sing and generally host, you know, the, the event. Um, But I'm happy to have uh, my husband join me in so many, so many ways. It's such a weird, weird concept, but this is our new normal. This is sort of a return to the percussive arts society for me. Um, I admit I'd kind of fallen out of the network for a while. Um, not super intentionally. Um, you know, I would go to PASIC a lot when I was in college and grad school and, uh, you know, young professional starting to freelance. I started my uh, day job working in the admissions office um, at Boston Conservatory. I ended up working there for 11 years. And as my, you know, admissions life kind of took off, my percussion seeking life kind of was put on the back burner. So I stopped going to PASIC for a long time. I admit I didn't really see a need for it because I wasn't seeking out a college job or, uh, you know, I wasn't auditioning for orchestras. I kind of knew the instruments I like. I know the sticks I like. I have kind of what I need to, you know, play marimba and sing and, um, it wasn't until I saw the percussion and voice as the focus day or day formerly known as focus day that really um, piqued my interest. And so it's kind of a nice full circle to come back. I mean, to be presenting at an event that I'd gone so much as a young, you know, young student, really Um, I'm excited to come back and kind of show and hopefully pay forward. Um, to other percussionists to see that this voice in marimba thing, voice and percussion is not just a novelty, not just like a parlor trick, but actually like this whole wealth wealth of opportunity and repertoire and expression that is available to them. So I hope to help inspire more singing marimbists. I would love to have someone to share a set with. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm excited about it. And last up for today's show is Washington, D.C. area-based percussion performer, educator, entrepreneur, and clinician, Donnie Johns. Donnie is part of the Color of Music Festival Orchestra Percussion Sections Clinic 
and concert at 9 a.m. Friday morning in room 205 of the convention center. The Color of Music Festival Orchestra Percussion Sections Clinic is the first ever to be presented on the symphonic side of PASIC that features an entire African-American section and focus. This group also includes recent podcast guests, Javon Milford and Thomas Spann Jr. Here's Donnie talking about his group's presentation and its origins. So Donnie, what you will all be presenting at PASIC and also tell us when it is happening. Yeah, sure. So I am part of the Color of Music Festival Orchestra percussion section. Um, The Color of Music is an ensemble that features and highlights classical musicians of African descent. And it's been in existence since 2013. I've been in the group since 2014. And we perform all over the country. We've been in, uh, see, Pittsburgh, D.C., Charleston, Houston, just to name a few, uh, Sacramento. And the percussion section is going to perform works written by Black composers um, at this year's PASIC. We are performing Friday, November 12th at 9 a.m. And it's really super, really exciting. We're going to do a collection of, of solo literature, percussion ensemble literature. Um, and again, it's all um, highlighting, featuring uh, uh, Black uh, composers. Where is the orchestra based? So we started off being centralized in Charleston, South Carolina. The um, executive director is a man named Lee Pringle, and he's from that area. And so our first couple of years, we were exclusively in Charleston, South Carolina. And then over the last uh, four or five years, we've expanded into various cities around the country. Excellent. How did you get connected with the group? Excellent question. I think <laughs> I have to remember. So with the University of Maryland and my last year at Maryland, I studied with um, Javon Gilliam, who's principal timpanist to National Symphony. Um, he and I are really great friends now. And um, I think they originally had asked him to be a part of the orchestra, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, he's a pretty busy guy. And so yeah. he wasn't able to do it. And um, he offered it to me and, and I've been been a part of it since. I've actually... Um, I, I do pretty well um, with his leftovers. So I shout out to Javon. <laughs> shout out to Javon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What a great dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's awesome. So the group of you who are performing, have all of you, is it, um, you know, a group that's been with uh, this orchestra for a while or, or is, is it a, it's still like kind of some new newcomers to it? Yeah, it's really a, a collection, kind of a, both. We have some orchestra members who have been there pretty much since the beginning and do most of the performances, but there's also plenty of space for new uh, players as well. All of us, most of us are either full-time professional musicians, freelancers, collegiate teachers, and so we all have busy schedules in our own right. And so every um, iteration isn't able to have the exact same players. But I would say probably a good two-thirds of the players are players who do it pretty much every time. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. Um, and how often does this ensemble meet and perform? During yeah, so year? typically, typically I would say maybe three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. You know, we do pretty much quarterly. 
Um, you know, as with any other large ensemble, it's a large, major financial undertaking. And so, you know, it's as often as we can fundraise and, and rise support and, and kind of get the, the financial backing there. So in general, about three or four times a year. Who came up with the idea of, of making this a PASIC idea? Yes, this is all Dr. Sean Daniels. He nice. is on the board of advisors at uh, for PASIC. He's um, was longtime percussion director of Tennessee State. Now he's currently the chairperson of, of fine arts at Alcorn State University, HBCU in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And he has been um, just the primary person in pioneering this whole event. Um, you know, we're p- performing some of his works. Super excited about that. And um, he's just for years been... Um, one of the main individuals kind of pushing for, you know, equity and diversity and representation um, with PASIC. And certainly that's become, you know, a primary goal over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but he, he's been doing the work for a long time, well well before it was popular. So, I, again, I got to give him a shout out as well. Yeah. I And he and I actually go back. We did our doctorates together at UNC Greensboro. So. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. He talks very highly about about his his time there in that percussion ensemble. You guys are y'all were some you know hot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, I know yeah. it was it was crazy for him because I believe he was at Hampton. Yeah, that's uh, right. When that was when he was doing that, and like I think he like his he had just had a very young child. It was just mm-hmm. I, I don't know how he pulled it off because it was a because he's like he had a full time job. He was yeah. getting a doctorate, young family. It was just, yep. yeah. Yep. I'm telling you that talk about this, the sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how, tell me a little bit of how, how you've all organized the program that you're going to perform. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, again, much of it, most of it is um, Dr. Sean Daniels, his, his kind of brainchild. Um, he and I have been, with color of music, he's principal timpanist. I'm principal percussion, and we are, you know, kind of the primary players in the group. And then um, the other members of the section have played, play with some frequency as well. Um, you know, depending, of course, depending on the programming, we don't always have large percussion sections, and so sure. you know, it just depends on who's needed for that program. But for this basic program, um, he selected the repertoire. Um, he definitely, you know, consulted me with some. There's one of my ideas with different things, but, you know, I, he, he is the leader with this and, you know, I, I trust what he's put into it. And, you know, it's mainly been his his idea. Again, you know, I think we're doing pieces, um, a couple of his pieces. We're doing an arrangement um, from Rimba Quartet of a Florence Price uh, piece written written for organ called Adoration. Oh, and he, Yeah, and it's a beautiful, lush you know, warm uh, piece written, a beautiful piece written for organ that he then arranged for marimba quartet. And so we're going to play that. Um, we're going to play some pieces by Rainer Carroll. Um, we're going to play some pieces um, just by a handful of, of, of great and, and often under um, represented uh, black composers. And so really excited about, about the program as a whole. We're going to do some um, uh, African style pieces, kind of Afro-Cuban style pieces, mm-hmm. more, more traditional classical pieces. Again, the Florence Price Rimba Quartet. Yep. So you're going to see a, a wide variety of percussion instruments being uh, being highlighted as well. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah. And who are the other members of the group that are playing at PASIC? So we have um, Javon Milford, mm-hmm. who is the percussion director at Allen University. 
in uh, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. We have uh, Thomas Spann Jr., who mm-hmm. is the marching band director at Fisk University in mm-hmm. Nashville. Um, we have um, Emmanuel uh, Scott, who is a former student of of Sean. And then we also have uh, Marcia McCants, who just finished up her master's degree at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. I forgot Malcolm Jackson, who also a former student of Dr. Daniels, um, finished his master's degree at University of Memphis recently, I believe, and mm. lives in Houston. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, this It's interesting because this is a, obviously this is a group. It's, I mean, you're the first African-American orchestral section, you know, that that's playing a PASIC. Right. And it seems like it, it's, it's just a, cause I would say it's about time, but I, it's, I don't know. It's, I, I guess what's weird on my end is that I, I, this is orchestral stuff has not been like the thing I've paid attention to at PASIC. So, so it's yeah. almost like the history of it is not, is not as caught on me as it, it should be for other people who are as involved. You know, Exactly. You know, I think that it's again, it's an opportunity just to show sort of the breadth of of what we're able to offer. Um, Oftentimes with black drummers and percussionists, we're seeing, you know, we see solid representation in the drum set realm, in in the drum line, marching percussion, um, certainly, you know, in in, in African drumming and Afro-Cuban, various world drumming aspects. And those are all wonderful realms and genres as well, but but we we exist and, and we we excel in all yeah. in all um, the facets of percussion, and so it's it's important and it's it's an honor for us to be able to showcase that uh, with this upcoming performance. You're it's like you're underselling you're you're overselling it a bit because the um, it's only been very recently that even um, HBCU drum lines have been a part of true. It. How about it? You know you you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. You know the Exactly. Yeah. I, I still, and so yeah, that, that part. So it's like, there's still, there's still a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. There's always mm-hmm. work to do. And, and I, I do have to commend uh, Josh, you know, Joshua Simons and pacing for, for, you know, making those strides, you know, and, mm-hmm. and let's continue to do that. Let's continue yeah, to push absolutely. it forward. Cause I, again, you know, what we're seeing being done now is great yeah. and it needs to continue to be great. It needs to be continue to happen. And so let's, you know, Let's continue to make those push that ball forward. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you know one of the things I think about on on, on stuff like that is is when I, I I've talked to Lamont Lawhorn a number mm-hmm. of times, you mm-hmm. probably know, and and um, you know one of the things he said when when he brought A um, and T's line is that they did they played and then they're like all right when are we coming back you know and it was like that's exactly what you want <laughs> you absolutely one hundred percent one hundred percent. One hundred percent. It's it's not a it's not a one off. It needs to right. be a continual, continual um, you know partnership and, and continual uh, showcasing. Right. Yeah. Does the orchestra, when it's when it's doing its concert season, does it also specifically you know tar, you know go for underrepresented African American composers, or is it is it an orchestra that's that's playing kind of the some of the Usual, I put that right, in right. Lit. Know what you mean? Know yeah, what yeah. You mean. yeah. It, it's 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 a combination of both. I would say that we heavily emphasize black composers, awesome. But then, but then we also perform pieces 
that are out of the you know traditional canon of of Western European orchestral repertoire. Great. Has it been with that group? Has it been hard, easy to find? Um, you know the the composers that that are just not. It's harder for them to break in. I mean, one of the things, as you know, about orchestral playing is it's just that it's so it's it's hard to break out of for orchestras to break out of the kind of the typical stuff because it's just it's it's been played forever. Right. Yep. Um, it's harder than it is for many other instrument groups. Like it, actually, percussion is one of the easier groups because all of, we're, it's all still so new. In a exactly. Very true. So. Very true. I, I think you know that has been a direct part of the direct mission of the organization, Colored Music, from day one. Yeah. And so you know we have had a good amount of success in being able to to find those composers and 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 highlight them because again that's that's been the mission. Yeah. Um, and, and the composers themselves have flocked to the organization. That's awesome. You know, and so it's certainly been a, a kind of a bi-directional, um, you know, partnership. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, here's a high level group that's going to do a really good job with our pieces. Why, you know, why not? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I know that cause like the, the organization that obviously this, this makes me think of is, is Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And I know that I believe that there's another orchestra that's like it in I want to say Houston. I feel like I've been uh, I've been I, I don't well, remember. I may be wrong on that. And I think Atlanta has uh, does. Do they also have a similar type? So, of so there's an organization. There's an organization. So Sphinx also you know highlights uh, black and, and Latin classical musicians. Yeah. Um, there's also an organization called Gateways, the Gateways Festival Gateway. Orchestra. Yeah. That has been in partnership with um, Eastman. Mm-hmm. Uh, school of School of Music, and actually, I'm a part of that orchestra as well. I'm oh, a, a, a sex, section percussionist in that group, and um, we're actually going to perform at in Eastman, April 2022, and also we're going to be at Carnegie Hall in New York City that same week. And I believe we'll, we'll be the first, you know, uh, black orchestra to be at performing Carnegie Hall in their 130 year history. Yeah. So it's going to be a pretty exciting. It's a you know, it's a big, it's a big year. Right. <laughs> so. Awesome. Lots of exciting opportunities there as well. Now, okay, so thinking specifically of that, so when you know that now, though, like whether you knew that in the past or now, that you like this will be the first time that an all African American group is playing, uh, orchestra is playing mm-hmm. at Carnegie. Is it mixed? How do you like? How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, I think it's again a lot of the things that we kind of you know, Harold and sort of highlight as being great feats. Like you're saying, there's always sort of mixed feelings embedded because it's like, a, again, whenever we kind of highlight these groundbreaking events, there's always sort of these embedded mixed feelings because it shouldn't be that big a deal. It shouldn't be, you know, a momentous occasion that, that, a, that a black orchestra is playing at Carnegie Hall because there have been immensely talented black classical musicians that have existed for, for generations. And so, um, you know, in 2022 2022 should not be the first year this is happening right right um but it's the reality and and yeah. you got to start somewhere so let's 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 be excited about this and again like we're talking about with PASIC let's use, use this as a launching point yeah. to make this a common a common occurrence yeah it's like needs to be harped on that it's like it's not your group's problem that, <laughs> that right. you're the first group <laughs> right 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 <laughs> absolutely so 
Um, awesome. No, that sounds, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I think that's going to be, I, I think it's going to be really good. Um, and really the good news, very much. the good news is that you, you play first thing and then it's like, all right, you know, yeah, you have to there you go. Hang out. it's good. I'm telling you, you know, it's going to be, um, I got a lot of meetings this year. I kind of just realized like, <laughs> you know, so I'm going to be, it's going to be busy, but yeah. you know, but bu- busy in a good way. So yeah. Um, there'll definitely be time for St. Elmo's and time for uh, time for Shula's. As <laughs> wow, as us, you can... look, you know, us, us basic vets, we know exactly what those two two places mean. So you know, it'll, <laughs> yeah. it'll be it'll be a good time. <laughs> you save up all year so you could afford. To I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's funny. So I have a quick story. I made the reservation um, almost a month ago for that mm-hmm. Friday night. You know, yeah. after the performance, and there were only like. I want to say maybe two or three reservations even left for that Friday night. And I booked it almost two months in advance. Yeah. So you, you know how, how busy St. Elmo's is, is <laughs> how popular it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and I will have part two for the 2021 PASIC preview coming out very soon. So stay tuned. No real rave this week other than to tell you that if you're able to, please go to PASIC. And if we run into each other, please say hello. It would be great to chat. All the usuals. Find us on all of the podcast platforms. Follow us on Facebook. Like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito and email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. I'll catch you soon with part two of the 2021 PASIC preview. Until then.